This is The Guardian. Before we start, just a warning that this episode contains reference to self-harm. If that content is distressing for you, help is available via Lifeline on 131114. We've also listed some support services on the Full Story page. But for now, listen with care. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. This year, New South Wales has been rocked by a spate of fatal police shootings. The victims, vulnerable people in mental distress. The Homicide Squad is leading the investigation into how a 95-year-old dementia sufferer was tasered at her nursing home in the Snowy Mountains. A woman has died in hospital after she was tasered and hit with projectiles during a tent standoff in Newcastle. These deaths have fueled calls for a royal commission and a radical rethink about how police respond to mental health crises, an idea that's gaining traction within the New South Wales government. But some say police should not be responding at all. You've got to be sensitive, you've got to be thoughtful, you've got to... Treat people like you'd like to be treated yourself. They're not scum. Today, the case for a radical rethink of policing of mental health crises. It's Tuesday, the 28th of November. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Jordan, how did you first start looking into police shootings of people in mental distress in New South Wales? So this started in May. Jordan Beasley is a reporter for Guardian Australia. After Claire Nowland, who was a 95-year-old great-grandmother living in a nursing home in Cooma who experienced dementia, was tasered by police after she was found holding in one hand a steak knife and supporting herself with her other hand on her walking frame. The elderly woman who was tasered by a New South Wales police officer in the state's Snowy Mountains region has died in hospital. And the New South Wales Assistant Police Commissioner had this to say about the case at the time. At the time she was tasered, um, she was approaching police. Um, But it is fair to say at, at a slow pace, she had a walking frame. But she had a knife. I can't take it any further as to the, what was going through anyone's mind when the use of the taser, that is for them to talk to. 
So in Claire Nowland's case, Senior Constable Christian White has been charged and that's with recklessly causing grievous bodily harm as well as assault occasioning actual bodily harm and common assault. Christian White hasn't entered a plea yet and the case is still in pre-trial hearings. However, following this, there were a series of separate, unrelated incidents involving the police and people in mental distress. So two weeks later, uh, there was another incident, this time Steve Pampalian, a 41-year-old man who lived on a quiet suburban street in North Willoughby, where he lived with his parents in a tight-knit family. He was shot dead by the New South Wales police in the driveway of his home while he was suffering a psychotic episode. Just before 11.30 this morning, police were called to Alexander Avenue after multiple reports of a man acting erratically and threatening residents. Officers opened fire on 41-year-old Steve Hampalian after he allegedly charged at police with two knives. Then about three months after those two deaths happened, I saw online there was a vigil at a public housing estate in Glebe, which is in inner Sydney, for a resident called Jesse Deacon. And he had died in a police shooting. And so I reached out to a public housing activist, asked what happened and did discover that this was another case where someone was fatally wounded or shot by New South Wales police while they're experiencing a mental health issue that left them detached from reality. And so I asked that advocate, could you put me in contact with one of Jessie's family members? And she reached out to Judy, Jessie's mother, who agreed to chat. All right. How are you feeling? Good? Okay. We'll see. She really wanted to tell his story. She was hesitant at first just about the timing. She wanted to make sure that she was ready and that it was the right time to, to tell his story. And then about six weeks after we had that first conversation, it happened again. A woman has died in hospital after she was tasered and hit with projectiles during a tent standoff in Newcastle. 47-year-old Krista Koch, who lived in Newcastle, she died after officers forced their way into her apartment after a nine-hour standoff shortly after she was told she was going to be homeless. She was being evicted from her home and she at that point threatened someone with an axe. Police came into her home, shot her with a taser and then a beanbag bullet. Um, And it's believed she was experiencing some form of psychosis. And so that was then four cases in just over four months. So it was after that I read about what happened to Chris Tukosh that I decided to ring Judy to hear her thoughts about the fact that this had happened again. And it was then that she decided it was time to tell Jessie's story. So, Judy, can you tell me what Jessie was like? Jessie was handsome. He didn't like that. He was tall. Uh, He had good posture. He was highly intelligent. So Jessie, her son, he was 43. Um, Judy says he was gentle. He loved music. He played the violin and he was very smart with that because he played a fraction behind the note. So most people wouldn't know he didn't actually know the piece, but he was able to follow a nice voice as well. Some of his pipe organ work was stupendous. And I just loved him. And 
And his sister loved him and his dad loved him. We all loved him. She also said he'd been struggling with his mental health for most of his life, so that happened when he was a teenager, back when not as much was known then about mental ill health. And so in high school he was diagnosed with affective psychosis, which leads to hallucinations and delusions. He had demons because of this, and, of course, kids usually don't tell their parents what the parents think they should be telling them, so a lot of stuff his father and I didn't know about. And we didn't know that he couldn't get up because of the depression or the anxiety or because you always think everybody's normal and what actually is normal. And during Jesse's adult life, Judy says he drifted from living in rental accommodation, boarding houses, sometimes he lived with family. Often he would self-medicate with drugs and he was in and out of hospital. Most recently, he was in hospital on remand after he hit someone while experiencing a psychotic episode. Um, But he had finally, after six years of waiting on the public housing waiting list, been given a home at uh, Franklin Street, which is a public housing estate in Sydney's Glebe. So after he was discharged from hospital, they did so under the proviso that he took antipsychotic medication fortnightly. And Judy said it really did seem like he was getting better in the months leading up to his death. I was so hopeful because when he came out of hospital and he got into his apartment, he started really shaping up and he was starting to be cleaner. He was always clean, but but put the rubbish out and he cut his hair. I mean, his dreadlocks were his, like, that was him. And he cut his dreadlocks. What happened on the day that Jesse died? In the hours before his death, Jesse had gone to his neighbour's house to ask for a cigarette and they saw that his arm was dripping with blood so decided to call Triple O to report that Jesse was self-harming. When the police arrived, they entered the home, found Jesse holding a knife. Uh, One officer responded by trying to use a taser, but it failed. And so the other officer that was there fired his gun and he died. Shortly after that happened, Judy got a confusing phone call from police. Can, Can, are you comfortable with telling me about how you found out what happened? I got a phone call and um, from the police to say they'd like to see me. And I said, sure, well, um, I can come tomorrow. And they sort of ummed and hard and didn't want to say anything on the phone. And finally he said, it's about your son. I said, okay, well, I'll come in later today. And I thought, well, he's been arrested or he's back in hospital. But when she was in the car on her way to the police station, she got a phone call from Jesse's dad. Whilst I was in transit, I pulled over, stopped the car. I was with a friend and he was crying. And I immediately knew that it was no arrest, no hospital, that he died. But I didn't ever imagine in a million years that he was death by intervention, by some, you know, people that were supposed to support and help. 
as you've said, Jesse's death was the fourth death in just over four months where the police had fatally shot or wounded someone who was in mental distress. That seems like a lot of people. How common is this more generally? So new figures have shown that on average 10 people in mental health distress die each year during an interaction with the New South Wales State Police. Mm. And so a report released in May by the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, which is the independent body that oversees the New South Wales Police, showed us that of the people that experienced a serious injury or died in an interaction with the police, half of them were actually experiencing a mental health episode. Mm. Nationally, that's a little bit of a harder question to answer. So we only managed to find out these New South Wales figures because the Greens MP, Sue Higginson, who's really been pushing this issue, put to the government questions on notice to find out exactly how many in the state had had died during a police interaction. Mm. As you mentioned, the police have been charged in the case of Claire Nowland, but what's happened in, in Jesse's case and the case of the other families? So there is a, an investigation underway into Jesse's death and also into Steve Pampalian and Krista Kosh's death. So when that investigation is finished, a report will be handed to the coroner who will then consider whether a coronial inquest is required. And the police never say at this stage of an investigation where exactly it's up to. So whenever a question is asked about it, whenever we as media put in a question about it, the response is usually the investigation is underway. Um, there was a shooting in 2019. Um, that victim's name was Todd McKenzie. And so his case actually shares quite a few similarities with Krista Kosh and also somewhat Steve Pampalian. That did go to a coronial inquest and that report is due soon. That was four years after he died. So that does show how long this process can take. Mm. Jordan, these four deaths all happened in major cities where the majority of Australian media are based. We do know that there are other deaths that go unreported. Why are we only hearing some of these stories? Well, we only have to look to those figures that I mentioned earlier, that around 10 people per year in the past five years experiencing mental health distress have died after an interaction with police. Who are those people? Um, I think that's an important question to ask. I think that actually shows that perhaps this issue hasn't gotten the attention that it deserved. And as you say, Laura, those cases that we have reported on, they, they've been in the city. And I think stories about use of force by police in remote areas and Indigenous communities are also underreported in the media. And there is another issue here, and this is something that the New South Wales Greens have alleged. They say police are curating a narrative around some of the incidents where people have been killed. And this did become a huge issue for the Pampalian family. So in the first press conference the police held the day Steve Pampalian was shot, they told reporters he was known to police. They did say it was minimal and the family did initially think perhaps he was, we just didn't know about it. But since then they've been told on two separate occasions by two separate police that he was in fact not known to police. And they've asked the police to retract that statement because to them, they feel that they were painting Steve as a criminal. Mm. And there's also elements of this in, in how Krista Kosh's death was actually reported by the police. So in that first press release that was put out by the New South Wales police, it didn't mention any mental health issues. 
That was one of the comments that triggered Krista Kosh's family to actually put out their own statement because they felt police were somewhat skewing the story. Mm. And they said, you know, the police knew full well that our mother was experiencing a mental health episode on that day. Next, the push to radically rethink policing of people in mental distress. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Jordan, how are New South Wales police trained to deal with call-outs where someone might be experiencing mental health distress or kind of be in crises? So the case I mentioned earlier, Todd McKenzie, the coronial inquest into his death heard evidence that police cadets only undergo 18 hours of mental health training. Mm. And then once they are in the force, they can participate in a voluntary one-day online training course. Also, New South Wales has trialled what's called a PACER program. That's where mental health experts station 36 mental health clinicians in 10 police area commands and districts. The aim of that is to ensure that police powers are only used when necessary in responding to mental health crises. But police and a New South Wales health executive told the inquiry into Todd McKenzie's death that mental health workers were forbidden from helping police during high-risk incidents. So if a person was armed and it turned into an incident where a negotiation was required, mental health staff were not trained to do that. So if we think about Krista Kosh's death, Steve Pampalian's death, Jesse mm. Deacon's, even if there were mental health clinicians stationed within uh, those police area commands, they wouldn't have actually been sent to deal with that situation. Right, which means for the majority of mental health call-outs, it's just police and they've done not a lot of training. What does the New South Wales government and the police have to say about that? Is that good enough? So the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, which is the independent body that oversees the police, have issued an urgent call for better mental health training for officers. In September, the New South Wales Police did announce it was accepting that recommendation and the New South Wales State Police Minister, Yasmin Catley, has said the force has commissioned a mental health review and that's due to report back in November. Mm. But you'll notice here that we, you know, the question of training has come up a lot within that. And if you talk to... Most lawyers who deal with police use of force issues, and I'll take Sam Lee, who works at the Redfern Legal Centre, as an example here, they're just sick of hearing the word training, mm. that whenever a situation like this happens, it's training, training, training. They need more training. And so a number of lawyers, alongside Judy, the Pampalians and other families say that this just isn't good enough. It's got to mean something. It's not, you know... <laughs> 
he was only 43. He just turned 43 in March. So he had a few years left where he could contribute in a meaningful way and that's been finished off. It's gone. But because this has happened to him and because it's happened to so many, somebody's got to do something. And the only way that we can do this is by doing it together. Right, so outside of training, what are some of the more serious structural changes that Judy and others are calling for? So Judy wants a radical rethink about police and how they respond to mental health call-outs. So she believes that police shouldn't be involved in most mental health call-outs. She also wants weapons to only go to police force members after they've actually been in the force for a number of years and have a proven track record. And she also thinks there should be a dedicated mental health emergency service. If you ring triple O, there should be a special unit or area. You've got police, you've got ambulance, you've got fire, and you should have mental health. And that way, instead of it all going to possibly people that may not be able to deal with it the way it should be dealt with, it can go straight to a mental health area who would then contact whoever they need to contact. Right, so you go to call triple zero and you can get onto a mental health expert rather than just police, ambulance, fireies. Is that the idea? Exactly. And I think this really speaks to something else Judy told me in which she said, you know, things have gotten so bad that people in public housing won't actually won't call triple O. In Glebe, for example, everyone's terrified of calling the ambulance triple O because what happens next? You get shot. How safe are you? You're not safe at all. And Judy alongside the families of Steve Pampalian and Todd McKenzie are also demanding a Royal Commission into how police respond to mental health call-outs. And so the idea for that is that, you know, there is a deep examination of the issues, what these cases show, where the system is going wrong, and there's actually recommendations that the government can then adopt to actually make sure that this doesn't happen again. So the only way, it seems to me, that this can happen is if an independent body says, what is not adequate. Where is the money being spent? This is what should be happening. And there's been lots of recommendations always from coroners and people, and I'm wondering whether they're actually taken up because that's another thing where you've got resources and time and effort and energy put in by well-meaning, intelligent people, and it goes... Nowhere. Is there appetite for this radical rethink of policing people in mental health crises in New South Wales and, you know, across Australia? Yeah, so shortly after Krista Kosh's death, a group of prominent lawyers and academics wrote an open letter calling for an alternative approach Um, So they want to see mental health specialists rather than police sent as first responders to mental health call-outs. We also do see different things happening in the states and territories. So in the ACT, a paramedic, mental health clinician and police officer respond to mental health call-outs together in an unmarked vehicle. I think that unmarked vehicle point is quite important because, again, as a prominent lawyer who deals with police use of force issues has told me, it's often police turning up in their uniform, in their vehicle, 
calling for people to come outside, which does make someone experiencing a psychotic episode feel threatened and scared and perhaps could lead them to then pick up a weapon. And even the New South Wales police concede that perhaps the system isn't working as it should. So in the press conference that the police held after Krista Kosh's death, the New South Wales Acting Police Commissioner David Hudson actually said there were 64,000 mental health incidents last year in which police were deployed to, and he Mm. said... To be perfectly honest, um, many of those incidents we probably should not have deployed to. Um, Showing up in uniform, showing up with police training can escalate a situation rather than de-escalate it, and we would suggest that uh, perhaps clinicians are better placed uh, to resolve some of these incidents. He wasn't making a comment on Cash's case specifically, it was more general, Um, but he said he totally supported more clinicians getting involved. Mm. So there is appetite here amongst experts, amongst the police even themselves, but how likely is it that we will see radical change within the New South Wales police in, in the near future? Well, currently there is a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry examining how and if police should respond to mental health call-outs. That's due to report back a little later this year. New South Wales Health Minister Rose Jackson, she says the way authorities respond needs to change and she's acknowledged the system has failed in some instances. Where they haven't done well. I mean, you rightfully have identified a number of instances where the system has, has failed. But the New South Wales Premier Chris Minns has shot down the idea for a royal commission. So he told reporters at the end of September that New South Wales Health and police were open to change, but he thinks a royal commission into police's use of force against vulnerable people just isn't necessary. And he says that's because he has confidence in the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission and also the police's internal processes to review their own conduct. So the current system of oversight, when these fatal police shootings happen is enough, it's working in the Premier's mind. Yeah, that's what he's saying here. But then you do have, for example, Greens MP Sue Higginson, who, as I mentioned earlier, has really been pushing this as an issue, say that she thinks that the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission lacks the teeth to actually be able to do anything about this issue. Jordan, through your reporting and the efforts of these families, We know a lot more about the lives of the people at the centre of these stories. Why is it important to hear that, to hear the kind of humanity behind some of these deaths? I think so much detail of who this person was and the life they lived and also what led to that situation can get lost. And I think that is important to have part of the story because otherwise there's this risk of the person being othered or people just not caring so much. You know, you see axe-wielding women and you don't immediately jump to compassion. And I think the risk of that is then, it doesn't then allow us to open up the broader questions that need to be asked when we see a case like this occur. You know, what does it say about our housing system? Mm. Krista Kosh experienced this mental breakdown after she was told she was going to be homeless. Jesse Deacon waited six years on the public housing waiting list before he got a home. Mm. And then obviously that other question that we have really been trying to answer is the system that is actually in place to respond to people experiencing a mental health distress when they call triple O, the correct one. And I think what this interrogation of these cases and what's happened here shows that, no, this system is not working. I've lost my son. 
I don't know about grief. I don't know how to grieve. I don't, you don't see me cry. You don't hear me cry, but my eyes are wet all the time. And every time I see a tall young man, it's like, no, it's not him. Or little things will just remind me about him and that he's not around. And what, what about the future? The curiosity of how someone will turn out. Will he meet someone? Will he have children? Will anything, nothing. And that also goes really for everyone involved. And it's, it's time. That was Judy Deakin, the mother of Jesse Deakin, and Guardian Australia reporter Jordan Beasley. I really recommend reading the piece titled, If They Don't Comply, They Die. Families Demand Royal Commission After Fatal New South Wales Police Shootings. That piece was reported by Jordan and New South Wales reporter Katie McLeod. And in it, they speak to a few of the families and the experts who are pushing for change. And you really get to hear more about some of their stories. Thanks also to Katie McLeod for her extra reporting and assistance with this episode. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Jacob Wallace and Daniel Simo, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of this episode is Hannah Parks. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.